You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, uh, I don't think I introduced myself, but I'm Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, so if you're new, it's great to have you with us today. We really are glad that you are uh, worshiping with us. We're, we just typically work our way through sections of Scripture, books of the Bible, um, and we're working our way through the, the narratives of Elijah and Elisha, and today is uh, we move from Elijah to Elisha. Uh, we're in 2 Kings chapter 2. So I'm going to read this chapter uh, in three sections. So I'll read a section and teach on it, read a section and teach on it, and then um, try to probably have some running application throughout. So anyway, here we go. Second Kings chapter 2. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 6. So please listen to God's holy word. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here. For the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he, Elisha, said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Well, from the first verse of this chapter, we get what the the theme, the narrative theme of what the whole chapter is going to be about. It's in verse 1. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind. So this is, this is marking a, the end of an era in, in Israel's history. The man, Elijah, if we start at the beginning of the Bible and read through Kings, you'd be hard-pressed uh, to find many people greater than Elijah in terms of their calling before God. Elijah has been the one who has stood uh, against Baal worship. We're at a season in the history of uh, Israel where they are worshiping Baal. They have given themselves over to false idols, and um, Elijah has been the one raised up by God to bring the word of God, to speak truth uh, to the king Ahab, the evil king, and the evil queen uh, Jezebel as well. And so now uh, he has already selected, under God's leading, selected Elisha uh, to be his uh, protege and his ultimately to be the one who will follow after him. So, Elijah, with a J, is the older guy. If you're new to the Bible, he's the older guy. Elisha, with a sh, 
is the younger guy who is following him. And now we're to this place where he's about to be taken up into heaven, and everybody knows it. They go to these two different places where there are the school of the, of the prophets. These are younger prophets, kind of seminary students maybe we might say. So he goes to these younger prophets, and they all say, hey, Elisha, you know that today or Elijah's going to be taken to heaven. They all know it. They're prophets. Of course they know it. And uh, so he says to them, I know that, so just don't, I don't want to talk about it. Be quiet on the Elijah going to heaven bit. And probably the subtext of their questions, do you know this today, is are you the next one? Is it, in fact, are you going to take over the mantle or the role, the position of Elijah in Israel? Elijah is a big deal. He has done great things. There have been tremendous miracles take place through his ministry. God has demonstrated his power over 450 prophets of Baal at one point. And so he is a significant leader. And uh, what we're going to see in the passage overall is that though Elijah is significant, God is far more significant and has a plan for his people. And they are all wondering, are you the next one? Now, he is sticking very close to Elijah. He wants to be there. Elijah says, hey, you can stay here in Bethel while I go to Jericho. And he says, no, I'm coming with you. And then he gets to Jericho. And he says, you can stay here. I've got to go to um, you know, I've got to go down to the Jordan. No, I am with you. So he is sticking on him uh, for what's about to take place, which we read starting in verse 7. So look at verse 7, verses 7 through 15. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. Okay, so they approach the Jordan. There's about 50 of these young prophets that are watching them, and Elijah rolls up his cloak, um, and he strikes the water with it, and it separates, like when Joshua led the people into the promised land, and the water separated of the Jordan. So he separates it. They get on to the other side, and Elijah says, okay, what do you want? So now's the moment he's about to be taken. What is it you want? What is it, I believe his exact words are, what can I do for you? And what can I do for you? What is it that you want? And Elisha 
verse 9 says, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. What is he asking for? Is he saying, I want twice the miracles of Elijah. I want twice the anointing, double the power. You know, overwhelm me. Is that what he's saying? I mean, you walked in power. I want double that. Well, this phrase is not referring to quantity or measurable power of the Spirit. Like, I want more of your Spirit or more of the Spirit. The the phrase double portion has to do with inheritance. So in Deuteronomy 21, for instance, 21 verse 17, we find out that when somebody died, that the firstborn son received twice the double portion of the inheritance of the other ones. So it was a patriarchal society. So if the patriarch died, it went to the first son. He received double the other sons. But not only that, he became the patriarch. So now he is the one who leads the family. He is the one responsible to oversee the household uh, as the one who received double portion, double the inheritance, but also the responsibility. So what Elisha is saying here is, what do I want? I want to be able to be faithful to God and faithful to God's people. I want to be able to fulfill the role that you fulfilled. Uh, He may be asking for more power for the task. He may be asking for God to do great things. That may certainly be part of it. But he's ultimately saying, I want the double portion. I want the calling, the responsibility that you have been given. Elijah Elijah says to him, you're asking for a hard thing. Now, is it hard for God to do that? Of course not. It's not hard for God. But this calling is hard. Think about Elijah's life. Elijah, the guy who went out and lived by the brook and ravens fed him. You remember that? Elijah who lived, in the, uh, who lived during the time of a tremendous famine. And only by God's miraculous power was he fed through the widow at one part of the story. Elijah who was chased down by Jezebel who said, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow. Get out of town. And he runs into the wilderness he, he runs into a cave, and he, God speaks to him. He is so depressed at this point in his ministry. He's so despairing that he says, God, kill me. He, he actually just wants to die. He gets that low. That's what his life was like. It was a hard life, and he's saying, this is a hard thing. You want double. Uh, you, know, uh, you want the responsibility that I've been given? This is not an easy thing that you are asking for at all. Well, he, he, then we see as they're talking and as they're walking, these chariots of fire come between the two of them. Verse 11, chariots of fire and horses separate the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. So he's taken by this wind. I don't know, some tornado just throws him up into heaven. And that's what it said at the beginning. The first verse was, now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, I learned something this week. I always pictured, or you know, I didn't read it very closely. I always thought that the chariots of fire and the horses on fire, that like uh, you know, Elijah sort of sat or stood, I guess you stand in a chariot, sort of stood in the, the chariot and somehow didn't get burned, but he's in this fire chariot and he rides on up into heaven. But the chariot and the horses just separate the two men. That's what it says, verse 11. They were separated by them. He's taken up into heaven by a wind. He's taken up through a whirlwind. And he cries after Elijah goes. Elisha cries out, my father, 
my father. So there's loss. He feels this loss. He tears his clothes. That's a sign of grieving. He's grieving that he's lost his mentor, his spiritual father. The great prophet is gone, is gone. Immediately we see that there is a transition because what happens in verse 13, while he's in mourning, while he's in grief, he takes up the cloak which had fallen off Elijah. So when Elijah's taken in the wind, the cloak falls off. Like everybody's clothes in a bad Kirk Cameron rapture movie, they all fall down and uh, he's taken up into heaven, but minus his cloak. And so uh, what happens here is that he takes the cloak and he hits the water. And the words are so key of what he says. When he hits the water, Elisha, just like his mentor had done, he says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Where are you, Lord? Lord, show your power. And he hits the water and it splits just like it had for Elijah. That's the sign that he now carries the calling that Elijah had. He is now responsible. And there's something very powerful about this because this, this scene just shows us that it is God who is at work. He calls out for the God of Elijah. Elijah was used by God. Elisha will be used by God. The leaders of God's people are valuable, but everybody is expendable. Everybody's expendable. God's not, God's not dependent on anyone. And as soon as Elijah has been taken up into the sky, immediately the same miracle is done from the next guy. Because the miracle comes from God. The power is from God. Dale Ralph Davis said the following about this scene here with Elisha splitting, splitting the waters. He says, our help is in the name of the Lord not in the charisma of his servants. God's leaders change, God's power persists. That is a message for today, friends. When the church looks so much like the world, uh, you know, uh, adulate, giving adulation to leaders, such that we have a term celebrity pastors, just trying to, you know, uh, put people up on a pedestal and honor leaders with like an undue level of honor and commitment and um, fame, this kind of a thing. It's not about any leader. Now, we thank God for leaders. It's not about any leader, though. It's about the Lord. The power is from the Lord. The ministry is from the Lord. And when one guy is gone or one gal is gone, there will be a new guy and a new gal that the Lord will use. The Lord is the focus. And God is faithful to his people. He is, he is faithful to, to bring them his word through a new prophet. And that's what we see here, a transition of power. But the power is the Lord's power from Elijah to Elisha. Well, let's read what happens next. And we'll close in this next section with one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible. Verse 15, now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, behold now, there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send, but when they urged him till... He was ashamed, he said, send 
They sent therefore 50 men, and for three days they sought him, but they did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought to him, so they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went on up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out from the city and jeered at him, saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out from the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. To Samaria. Well, uh, the transition is done from Elijah to Elisha. The prophets all recognize him. Uh, they're misguided. They think that Elijah got taken up, but maybe he got dropped off somewhere. So they say, hey, let's go search for the guy and find him. You know, he could be out in the wilderness and needing some help. And Elisha knows what has happened. Uh, so he says, don't go do that. They do go do that, search for three days. And when they come back, I, prophets are pretty direct. Elisha essentially says, I told you so. Why would you waste your time? Uh, you did not need to go. The next thing that happens, so that's about the transition again. So he is, you know, Eli, uh, all the prophets now know that Elijah is gone. And then there are events at two different cities. The first one is at Jericho. And in Jericho, the men of Jericho come to Elisha and they say, hey, we got a problem. Things are decent around here. Things are pretty good, but our water is bad. And because our water is bad, it, the land is unfruitful. It says, uh, the city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. Now, really key here is, I believe, when they call him my Lord, they, they, they come to, uh, they're not calling him Lord like capital L-O-R-D, but it's a term of respect. They're recognizing him as a leader. They recognize him as a prophet of God. It's really what's happened. You go to the prophet of God and you say, okay, we've got a problem here. Can you help us? And if you're asking for help from the prophet of God, you are in turn asking from the God of the prophet. They're going to the prophet and they want God's help, Jericho does. And so he does this rather unusual thing. Uh, he says, bring me a new bowl, put some salt in it. He goes out to the spring. He throws salt in the spring. And then he speaks a word, verse 21, thus says the Lord, I've healed this water. From now on, neither death nor mis miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. Okay, why did he pour salt? Was this salt healing? Could it heal a spring? No, salt could not heal a spring. It's symbolic. Salt represented the covenant. Uh, Numbers 18, 19 speaks of that. So salt's a, a symbol. It's a sign that represents the covenant God has made with his people. And he speaks a word. Thus says the Lord, the water will be healed. So we have a sign representing God's covenant, and we have the word. We have sign and word together bring the grace of God to bring healing where there is death. 
a visible sign and a spoken word, which is very much what we have today, isn't it? We have word and sacrament as, as the power of the gospel, uh, to demonstrate the power of the gospel, the way God works among his people today as well. And he says that there will no longer be death caused by this water. The water is causing not only bad crops, but things are happening. People are dying. Women are miscarrying. And he says this will not happen anymore. As is always the case in Elijah and Elisha, there's always these pokes constantly at Baal. Baal is viewed to be the god of the storm, the god of life, the god of fertility. And here is Yahweh, the God of the Bible, coming and saying, the water is healed and life comes because life comes from God and no idol like Baal. Now, what is so powerful about this situation is the Bible is always a singular story of God's redemption. And if we pick up in the middle of it like we're doing today, sometimes we miss what's happened before and we can miss the impact of a passage. And that's for sure here because you could read this and go, what is this, this is some kind of parlor trick, throwing salt, and what, what is this all about? No, th this is tied to something uh, very historic and very powerful. This is the city of Jericho. The leaders of Jericho are coming to God and asking for help, which is, uh, which is the key part of the text, I believe. What happened was when Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land, and you remember they took Jericho, walked around the walls of Jericho, and the walls come a-tumbling down. You remember that story, and I've sung the song perhaps. Uh, but Joshua, when the walls came down, Joshua gave a, an oath and said, this city should never be rebuilt. This is what he said in Joshua 6, 26. God laid, on, uh, God laid an oath on them at that time saying, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho. At the cost of the firstborn shall he lay its foundation and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So nobody's supposed to build this, and if anybody would dare build this city, it'll cost them their own kids. That's the curse that's brought over this. But now we got a whole city of people. How did that happen? Well, if you remember our first study of Elijah, what we found out is there's a really bad king named Ahab, and he was so bad that under his reign, a guy named Hiel was raised up, and he rebuilt Jericho. So the king says, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what Joshua said. I don't care what oaths they are. We're going to build the city against God's will. Well, Hiel goes and builds a city, and his two sons die, just like the passage said. So there we have this city that was not supposed to be rebuilt is rebuilt. And is it any surprise that God is resisting them through poison water, through crops that aren't fruitful, through people dying, through women miscarrying? Why has all that happened? Because they're on a whole project that God said, if you ever go down this road, there's a curse against it. And yet they are resisting God. So what happens? The leaders, it doesn't say they repented. The word repentance is not used here, but it's certainly implied, is it not? These people come to the leader and they say, you're the man of God, you're the prophet of God, help us. In other words, we're going to ask for help from God. And when they do, God brings healing. God reverses the curse 
to people who come looking to the man of God, the prophet of God, who represents God. The point is, with God, there is forgiveness. Yes, they've built where they should not build. Yes, they are, you know, they are a society that should not be in that city living. And yet, when they turn to God, God forgives. God doesn't say, well, look, just live in it. I'm not going to do anything for you. How many times do I have to tell you? No, God is the God of new beginnings, the God of fresh starts, the God who doesn't give us what we deserve but gives us mercy to the person who turns to him. He, he blesses those under the old covenant. He blesses his people when they look to him, and his people suffer his judgments when they chase other gods. And these people in Jericho are looking to God. And even though they've disobeyed, he cleanses the water. He restores. He brings life where there is death, where there is deserved death for their disobedience. God gives grace. You know, many of us in the room can relate to the whole Jericho thing because we've built where we shouldn't build. We've built up our lives on all kinds of goals and directions and ambitions that aren't from God. We've built uh, where God said, don't build. And here's the build. And the reality is that you may have taken a turn and built your life in a direction that's bringing a lot of a lack of fruitfulness, maybe death, difficulty, sorrow. I think it's a picture on a Father's Day to say that, I'm not saying this is an allegorical passage, this literally happened, but it reveals to us something about God. It reveals that God is a God of mercy and grace, and he gives it to the undeserving. Those who deserve his judgment, when we turn to him, looking to him, he gives grace. And there may be a father in the room who you say, I've built in a bad direction, and today I've, I've got a a lack of fruit in my life. It could be something about financial or something relational or something career-wise or something even health-wise where you say, I've done this thing that I knew was wrong. I've gone the wrong direction. Is there any hope for me now? And the answer is yes. If you are alive and breathing, your story is not over and the mercy of God is available to you. It requires turning to him and asking and saying, God, the water is bad. Would you heal and bring healing? This is the God who gives fresh starts. Well, from Jericho, we go to Bethel. And we read this story, which is very difficult. And, and by the way, this is why we teach through books of the Bible. Because no pastor who wants to just preach his hobby horse and the things he cares about wakes up one week and says, you know, this Sunday I'm going to preach on bears mauling children, right? Nobody would ever preach that. It's in the Bible. It's hard. And no one would ever pick that, but you land on it, and you got to talk about it, and you got to say something about it. Well, it's a hard passage, no doubt, um, and it too is a story about God's covenant. So, Elisha is on the way to Bethel. All these cities matter. Verse 23, he went there from there to Bethel, and while he was going on the way, some small boys came out of the city, came out of the city of Bethel, and jeered at him saying, go up, bald head, go up, bald head. Now, the ESV says they are small boys. We don't know their age. We know they're not adults. Some, some speak of this being young teens or 
Maybe they're tweens. Somebody said, yeah, these are 10 to 12-year-olds. Nobody really knows, but they are, they're not little bitty boys. They're, they're old enough to have a large group travel outside the city and to cost the profit. So they're, maybe they're 10 to 12, maybe they're 13, who knows. Um, and there's a large group of them. It says, the text says, verse 24 says, the bears came out and tore 42 of the boys. So there's a group greater than 42, at least 43. We don't know how big, but a big group. Lots of kids, and um, 42 of them die that day. They come out and they mock and scorn the prophet. Now, they're from Bethel, and Bethel is a prodigal city. Because earlier, Jeroboam, King Jeroboam, had set up these golden bulls in, in, uh, in Bethel. And so the people of God in Bethel worshipped these golden calves, golden bulls. They, they worshipped statues. And they had been worshipping these statues at this point for 80 years. There's 80 years of hardened hearts that have turned from Yahweh and have turned to false gods and are worshiping uh, these, these, uh, these idols, these statues. And so it's not surprising that after 80 years, the second or third generation would be hardened in their heart towards God or towards the prophet. Now, the boys, it says in verse 23, come out of the city. So here we have this prodigal city of idolaters. God's people, but they've turned from him. And these these boys come in a large group outside to the city where uh, Elisha is coming by. This is intentional. They're, they're doing something intentional. So don't read the story like Elisha is walking through town. He didn't even go into the town. He's walking through town and like a, you know, a couple of six-year-old boys giggle and point at his bald head. And he says, that's enough. And, and calls bears and they die. That is not what is going on. This is a large group of people, uh, young, but a large group that deliberately go outside the city and find the prophet walking by. And they mock the prophet. They call him uh, bald head, go up, you bald head, go up, bald head. Now, why, why is it funny? Why are they mocking him? Because he is bald. We don't know for sure. Some people say that uh, some scholars believe that prophets shave their heads at this point. So they're, they're identifying him as a prophet, no doubt. But maybe he looks like the prophets and he, they're uh, directly mocking him for that. It could just be that he has natural hair loss and they are laughing about that. But whatever it is, they are mocking the prophet of God. They realize he's a prophet of God and their, their charge to him is go up. Go up, bald head. Now, why, why do they say go up? Two options. I'm not going to land on either one of these, but one of them could be that they're, they're mocking him because the story of Elijah is known. People know about Elijah and his disappearance. So they could be saying, hey, why don't you do that Elijah trick? If you're really of God, why don't you go up and disappear? By the way, we don't want you anyway. Uh, they don't, they're not submitted to the prophet of God. They're headed a whole different direction. So why don't you just go up? and disappear like he did. Or it could be, probably more likely, like the NIV just translates it or paraphrases it, get out of here, baldy. That's what the NIV says. Get out of here. Don't come into our town. Just keep going along. So they're in this prodigal city. This large group of kids come out. They are mocking the prophet of God. They are opposed to the prophet of God, like their parents are, like their grandparents likely are 
as well. And they're judged for their mocking. A couple things about that. You know, we, we don't really think mocking's a big deal, mocking individuals. I'm not talking about really good friends lightly playing back and forth, you know, guys giving each other the business, whatever. I'm not talking about that. This is, this is the kind of mocking that is, you know, uh, intentionally hurtful, mocks what someone looks like, could be their... Their, their shape, their size, their ethnicity, something they believe, something in their personality, something about them that is intended to uh, scorn them. It's oppositional in nature. And, and we don't think that's really that big of a deal. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, well, they will never hurt me. We just don't think it's a big deal to mock an image bearer of God. And as a matter of fact, if you're really good at it, you can get a large online social media following just from delivering uh, mocking of people that think differently than you and um, you know that that sort of a thing but this is serious not because they're just mocking an image bearer but because they're mocking the prophet and the prophet of God represents God to mock God's prophet is to mock God to oppose God's prophet is to oppose God, to disrespect in this era of salvation history when there was a prophet like this that delivered the word. We have the word. We don't have any prophets delivering the word like Elisha was or Elijah was. We have this, the scripture. But in this point in salvation history, to mock the prophet was to actually mock the one who sent him. And so these boys reflect Bethel. They reflect the culture of people that are worshiping golden statues of people that aren't embracing the ways of God and aren't just saying, hey, you go your way, I'll go mine. They're oppositional to the, to the prophet of God, and we're to see that as such. They reflect a hardened city of God's people who are living as idolaters. These aren't the nations. These are the people of God opposing the prophet of God. And their hardness of heart causes Elijah to call down a covenant curse upon them. So this isn't Elijah got mad. This is 80 years of idolatry reflected in the next generation who leave the city in a large group to mock the prophet, resist the prophet of God. And Elijah says, God will bring judgment now according to his word. Only he could call that, but calls down a covenant curse. What happens here is not a random act of a mad guy sending animals to eat children. What's happening here is what God promised would happen when his people turned from him. So, covenant curses are found in a number of places, but one of the places is Leviticus 26. So look at verses 14 through 16. All of God's people would have known this, his law, or they should have known his, his law. But if you will not listen to me, God says, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I'll visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. So to start off in this section... He's saying, hey, look, here's what's going to happen. If you turn from me, then there's going to become uh, bad things that come into your life. 
as discipline so that you turn and see your need for God and turn in repentance. This was the goal. It's redemptive, but this is the goal that you will turn. So you're going to get sick. You're going to be panicked. You are going to uh, plant crops, and, and your enemies will come in and eat them. So these are some of the things that could happen. Then he goes on. Verse 21, skipping a section. Verse 21, there we go. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. So God gives the law. He promises blessings to his people when they serve him. When they chase other gods and turn from him, he promises that there will be judgments that are redemptive in nature to call them back to God. And he gives all of these judgments. And as you work your way down the judgments, you come to this section where he says, if you harden your heart towards God as the people of God, then then, uh, there will be consequences. And one of the consequences is enforced here. After 80 years of worshiping false gods, where the city is so hard that now we have young people coming out and mocking the prophet, when you've gotten to that point, God says, I'm going to arrest your attention by allowing wild beasts to bereave you of your children. This isn't a random, God got mad and man, you know, God's mad, be careful, don't say anything today, he's about to explode. No. This is something that was promised along with blessings being promised to the people of God. And it's a, it's, it teaches us what happens when God's people give themselves to false worship. God takes that very seriously. And here in this instance, he enforces, after years of mercy, he enforces a covenant judgment. There is rebellion against God that the kids just reflect how bad things have gotten when his people have turned away and the next generation mock God. Matthew Henry, who's written a commentary hundreds of years ago that people still read, said this about this passage. He said, let the hideous shrieks and groan of the wicked brood make our flesh tremble for fear of God. Texts like this are to cause us to see the holiness of God and to fear God. To fear God. We don't really fear God. And when we come across a passage like this, it's revealed. Because many want to say, well, this is a legend, this is allegory, this has really happened. More liberal theologians say that. Some people want to judge God and say, God, how can God do this? I'm opposed to God. Listen, we don't read the text of Scripture and judge God. The text of Scripture judges us. And this is grievous. Any of us should read this and be grieved for the loss of life, for sure. But we don't accuse God as if he has done wrong by fulfilling promises to people that he rescued from slavery and brought into a land to worship him. But because we're so, this is so offensive to our Western sensibilities, it just real, realizes that we don't know the holiness of God. We don't know him. In the church, we're really good at saying those people out there don't fear God. Oh, I can preach that, and it's, it, I can grandstand all day long, and evangelicals will be applauding and say, go! 
Tell us about how Hollywood doesn't fear God and the abortion industry and the pornographers and the LGBTQ community and the racists and the media and all these. Tell us, yeah, they don't fear God. So we're really good at pointing to all the people and perceiving all the people's actions which don't fear God. But when you come to a text like this, this isn't the nations. This is Israel. This is the people of God who have lost their fear of God. And one sign that the fear of God is not as active in my soul as it can be is that I'm offended by the word of God and that I don't like it and I wish God were different. That's a sign that I'm not really submitted to God in the fear of God. This passage calls me to say, Lord, this is, this is terrible what has happened Lord, help me to see you and to fear you and to come running to you for mercy. Don't miss the juxtaposition of the two cities here. Jericho is cursed. It's not even supposed to be built up. And they went and built it anyway. But what happens when the leaders say, God, we need you? They come to the prophet of God and say, heal us. Heal our water. What does God do? Absolutely, there will be no more death in this city and miscarriages. I mean, people die. But he's saying nobody from, the, from this water will die anymore because I'm a healing God that heals. That's what happens in Jericho. What happens in Bethel? We're worshiping idols so fiercely that even our kids are going to go in large gangs out to mock the prophet of God. That's how hard we are, and we're, we're celebrating our hardness. We're calling evil good and good evil. They don't fear the Lord at all. Don't miss what this says to all of us. When we read a passage like this, we need to ask for God's grace. Not that we just have greater perception of how the world doesn't fear God, but so that we have a greater perception about how the people of God often don't fear God and how we as well could be in that group. When we read a passage like this, we see our need for God's grace. Philip Ryken in his commentary writes of this story that we just read, anyone who scorns someone made in the image and likeness of God deserves to die. We don't believe that. We think, well, it's just, it's just words. But that's not what the Bible teaches. This is why he says, in order to save us, Jesus had to die a cursed death on the cross. It was for our mockery as much as anything else that he was crucified. In his love, Jesus accepted the curse, the death penalty for our sin. He did this by offering a perfect sacrifice even when he himself was subjected to ridicule and scorn First Peter says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Riken writes, our ridicule, along with all our sins, sent Jesus to the cross. And it was our ridicule, along with all our sins, that Jesus was dying to forgive. Let this troubling story strike us with the fear of God so that we go running to Jesus where there is mercy and forgiveness. Yes, our ridicule deserves death. Our mocking, our resistance of God, our idolatry, we're all idolaters by nature. We have thousands of substitutes for God that we run to in our time of need. 
and we can cling on to our idols like Bethel, our golden calves. They can cling on to our idols and resist God as these boys and their families, their parents do. Or we can come running and saying, Lord, don't give me what I deserve. Give me mercy. Give me grace. And God will always reach us and embrace us. Jesus says, whoever comes to him will never be cast out. The promise of Jesus is you will never be rejected if you come to him. If you come to him for forgiveness, he will embrace you in his open arms. The God who is faithful to his word. That's what this is about. The covenant blessings to those who look to him. The rejection to those and judgment to those who resist him. And and you know, the incredible thing is that the miracles of the Bible all point to something. They're signs. And they point to something eternal. The first miracle here points to the fact that there's coming a day in a new heaven and a new earth where all the water will be pure. All the water will be life. All the, uh, the, the animals and the people will flourish in the kingdom of God in the new heaven and new earth. The Jericho miracle is a sign of what is to come for people who deserve judgment but have received blessing. How glorious is that to those who would humble themselves to be welcomed into the kingdom of God with the king, which is life eternal in a new heaven and new earth. Conversely, the story of Bethel is the story of those who will experience judgment for eternity. Those who, rather than submitting to the good and gracious God in Jesus Christ, would mock and resist and say, we don't need you. Go up from here. Leave me alone, Jesus. Move on. I have what I need right here. For those, for those, well, there will be eternal judgment. For those who reject, not Elisha, but the one greater than Elisha, the true prophet, Jesus Christ. This text closes with an invitation for us, doesn't it? For every one of us in the room. If you're not, if you've never trusted Christ, this text is intended in all its gory imagery to reveal to us the holiness of God who gives just punishment to sinners like you and me and to come to him to receive forgiveness and new life and to be warned of the eternal danger that lies in front of us. For those of us who are Christians, this, this, this says something too as well. Lord, help me to fear you, because in fearing you, I see the beauty of the cross, that you poured out all your wrath upon Jesus, that his death really was for my sins, and that your mercy to me is more than I can imagine, and your grace fill me and inspire me, empower me to walk with you. The cross is only as glorious as our understanding in our minds, in our view, it's only as glorious as our understanding of the wrath of the holiness of God. When we see that, then the cross is beautiful because it's where we run to receive forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.